Thank you, Larry. Just uh, so there's not any confusion, I wanted to be sure that all of you knew that uh, uh, this 10 a.m. service is our only service this morning. <laughs> and because of the weather, you know, just want to make sure that everybody was clear on that. Have any of you ever seen this T-shirt? In case you can't read it, it says, Heck is where people go who don't believe in gosh. Maybe you want to run right out and get one of those. Maybe you've heard this story. There was this Christian lady who had a lot of traveling for her business, so she did a lot of flying. And because of that, um, she was a little nervous about flying. She never quite got used to it. She was nervous about it. So she always took her Bible along to read because, first of all, she liked to read the Word, and secondly, it helped her relax a little bit. And one time when she was flying, she was sitting next to this man, and when she pulled out her Bible, he kind of glanced at her, and kind of gave almost a mocking little chuckle like, here's this lady reading her Bible. And he went back to what he was doing, and after just a little while, he turned to her and he asked, well, you don't really believe all that stuff in there, do you? Well, the lady said, sure, of course I do. It's the Bible. He said, well, what about that guy who was swallowed by the whale? She said, yeah, you're thinking of Jonah. Yes, I believe that. It's in the Bible. He said, well, how do you suppose he survived all that time in the whale. The lady said, well, I don't really know. I guess when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the man looked at her sarcastically and said, what if he isn't in heaven? And the lady replied, well, then maybe you can ask him. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It's hard to find good, usable jokes about hell. Why do you think that is? Because clearly, hell isn't very funny. It isn't very funny. Most of the jokes about hell you can find somehow mock the very idea of hell's existence. You don't hear much about hell anymore, not just in humor, but in any setting, even in church settings. That's in large part because fewer and fewer people believe in hell anymore. For some who do believe, it's almost as if we've somehow managed to air-condition hell. Even Christians seem a little bit embarrassed about the doctrine of hell, the move away from, the undermining of the doctrine of eternal punishment in a place called hell has been going on for quite some time. This is not a new phenomenon. Today we find Christians who deny the doctrine entirely. Christians, consider this quote. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. I think it's important for us to think about hell. I think it's important for us to remember something about why the gospel is good news. The gospel isn't good news because it makes our life better. In fact, for some of us, that's pretty far from the truth. Yes, there's joy in the Lord. Yes, God provides. Yes, God gives us spiritual and emotional resources for the challenges of life. But think of this. Try telling the Muslim in Yemen who converts to Christ that the good news of the gospel means his life is going to get better. 
Try telling our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ that being a Christian means only good things will come into their lives from now on. They'll be healthy, they'll be wealthy, they'll be prosperous. No. The good news is that Jesus paid the price for our sin when we were absolutely incapable of doing so. And because of that, because of what Jesus did, we can have eternal life, and we can escape the eternal death that awaits all of us in hell unless we receive the amazing grace offered to us in Christ. As I prepared for this message, I quickly realized that if any message ever called for sober, serious consideration, this is it. Do you recognize this famous sculpture? It's called The Thinker by Rodin. Most people, until a few days ago, I would have included myself in that most people category, don't know what the thinker is pondering quite so deeply. I've always thought it was just kind of a general deep thinking. But Rodin did this sculpture as part of a larger display. The theme was the divine comedy of Dante. And Rodin entitled the portal, The Gates of Hell. Each of the statues in the piece represented one of the main characters in Dante's epic poem. The thinker was originally meant to depict Dante himself in front of the gates of hell, pondering his great poem. In the final sculpture, a miniature of the statue sits atop the gates of hell, pondering the people who are in hell. So that's what the thinker here is thinking about. He's thinking about those who are in hell. Dante wrote the Inferno in an era when people did think more often about the horrors of hell. Here's a brief segment from Dante's famous work. I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way to eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moved my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence, primordial love, and ultimate intelligence. Only those elements time cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You know what? There are so many passages of Scripture which speak to us of eternal judgment that we cannot possibly explore all of those this morning. But doesn't that very fact say something to us? This is a doctrine we cannot ignore, we cannot diminish, we cannot sweep under the rug. We cannot and should not be embarrassed about it. Because if we're embarrassed about it, we're embarrassed about Jesus. Because Jesus spoke of hell and judgment more than anyone else. That's right. The truth is that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in all of Scripture. Jesus referred to hell as a real place, and he described it in graphic terms. He spoke of a fire that burns but doesn't consume. He spoke of an undying worm that eats away at the damned and a lonely and foreboding darkness. Jesus says the unsaved will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus taught that an unbridgeable chasm separates the wicked in hell from the righteous in paradise. The wicked suffer terribly, remain conscious, retain their desires and memories, long for relief, cannot find comfort, cannot leave their torment, and have no hope. 
our Savior could not have painted painted a more bleak picture of hell. C.S. Lewis said, I have met no people who fully disbelieved in hell and also had a living and life-giving belief in heaven. The clear teaching of the Word of God on both destinations stands or falls together. If one is real, so is the other. If one is a myth, so is the other. The best reason for believing in hell is that Jesus said it exists. There seems to be a kind of conspiracy, wrote Dorothy Sayers, to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. You know what? It's true, isn't it? We kind of like to pick and choose the things that we want to believe, we want to listen to from the Bible and from the very words of Jesus. We're just fine when Jesus says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. That makes us all feel really good. That's true. We love it when Jesus says things like, truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. We're not so excited when Jesus says things like he said in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, do not be amazed by this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. We're not so excited when Jesus says things like he said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or how about John 3, 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The truth is we cannot make hell go away simply because the thought of it makes us uncomfortable. If I were as holy as God, if I knew a fraction of what he knows, I would realize hell is just and right. We should weep over hell, but not deny it. If there isn't an eternal hell, Jesus made a terrible mistake in affirming that there is. And if we cannot trust Jesus in his teaching about hell, why should we trust anything he said, including his offer of salvation? We may pride ourselves in thinking we are too loving to believe in hell, but in saying this we blaspheme, for we claim to be more loving than Jesus, more loving than the one who with outrageous love took upon himself the full penalty for our sin. Who are we to think we are better than Jesus? Or that when it comes to hell or anything else, we know better than he does. Some people believe that hell is a blemish to be covered up by the cosmetic of divine love. I thought long and hard about why should we hear a message about hell at TCF. After all, aren't we all believers in Christ here? What purpose would a message on hell serve here at TCF on a Sunday morning? Well, as I thought about it, I believe there are three key reasons why we need to hear about hell, and we need to hear about it maybe a little more often. First of all, why a message on hell? Some of us here may be in danger of spending eternity there. I don't assume for a minute that each and every person 
sitting here this morning has received the gift of salvation, of eternal life through Jesus Christ. While I would hope that God's love, the recognition of His amazing grace, would be sufficient to draw people to Him, I also recognize that just as it says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The bottom line is this. I don't really care what your initial motivation is for coming to Jesus Christ for salvation. It might be better if you came as a response to his love and never had to hear about the other side as opposed to a fear of eternal damnation. But God's heart is that you do respond. William Evans wrote, Fear is a legitimate motive to which we may appeal. While it may be classed among the lower motives, it's the only one that will effectively move some. George Whitfield said, And though one would imagine the bare mentioning of heaven would be sufficient to draw men to their duty, yet ministers in all ages have found it necessary frequently to remind their people of hell and to set before them the terrors of the Lord as so many powerful dissuasives from sin. Truth is, we're kind of afraid sometimes that old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching, that's what we used to call it, will offend people or it will drive them away. But the fear of eternity in hell should at the very least get your attention. The second reason I thought about why we need to hear about hell is regardless of where you stand on the issue of what some people have called once saved, always saved, we won't really examine that issue here this morning, there is enough scripture that cautions believers about the fire and brimstone consequences of sin. We as believers have to take note of these. I'm not going to read these this morning, but there's passages from Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, and Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31, that address these things. Another reason I think that we need to hear about hell this morning is the reality of hell, the horror to come for many, should spur us on to fulfill the Great Commission and to do our small part to help keep others from going there. We need to live our lives with an eternal perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 18 talks about the things which are seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's things we don't see, but they are eternal. Horrible is not too strong a word to describe hell. In fact, what we're finding in much of the world today, and we're even seeing this creep into the church, is that the picture Scripture presents of hell is so horrible, it's so impossibly terrible, that we've felt the need to kind of soften its horror. That's why there's a lot of false doctrine that has crept even into the church. First of all, there's the belief in annihilationism. This essentially means that rather than be cast forever into a lake of fire, that's one of the scriptural descriptions of hell, the unsaved are essentially destroyed. That means they're kind of taken out of consciousness forever. They cease to exist. And then, of course, many of us have heard of the idea of universalism. This idea tells us that sooner or later, all people will be saved. This position states that the concepts of hell and punishment are absolutely inconsistent 
with a loving God. Annihilationism especially is becoming more and more popular in the church. Universalism isn't far behind. These things are presented as loving alternatives for sensitive Christians. Yet in both cases, I have to tell you, it takes some interesting theological and mental gymnastics to avoid the plain meaning of Scripture. In the Matthew passage, Matthew 25, 41, which we read just a few moments ago, the final state of the wicked is described as everlasting punishment. From this, it follows logically that we are not annihilated. Writer William Shedd argues that the extinction of consciousness is not the nature of punishment. If suffering is lacking, so is punishment. Punishment entails suffering, but suffering entails consciousness. If God, by a positive act, extinguishes at death the remorse of a hardened villain by extinguishing his self-consciousness, it's a strange use of language to denominate this a punishment. The Greek adjective for eternal used in this passage in Matthew and in other places means everlasting without end. However, we have to note, to be honest, that in certain contexts, this adjective is is not always used of eternity. Sometimes in some passages, it refers to an age or a period of time. On the other hand, in many places, the adjective is used of God. That is, for example, the eternal God. In these passages, this word means eternal, as shown in their contact context and from the fact that God is the subject of this adjective in these passages. So that proposes a little bit of a quandary to us. If sometimes it can mean eternity, like forever and ever, and sometimes it doesn't, how can we be sure of its meaning in Matthew chapter 25 when it talks about eternal judgment? Well, I believe that the single most compelling indication of its meaning in that passage is the fact that the duration of the punishment for the wicked forms a parallel with a duration of the punishment for the righteous. The very same adjective is used to describe both the length of punishment for the wicked and the length of eternal life for the righteous. So I think it's abusing Scripture to limit the duration of the punishment for the wicked without at the same time limiting the duration of eternal life for the redeemed. John Broadus, in his classic commentary on Matthew, states, It will at once be granted by any unprejudiced and docile mind that the punishment of the wicked will last as long as the life of the righteous. It is to the last degree improbable that the great teacher would have used an expression so inevitably suggesting a great doctrine he did not mean to teach. Sixty-four times the same word is used to remind us of the eternal nature of heaven. Would it not be logical to conclude that in the seven occurrences of eternal to describe the complete opposite of these blessings, that is eternal punishment, the idea is that of duration without end. This passage in Matthew 25, 41 describes hell as a place of eternal fire. Does this mean it's a literal, material, physical fire? Well, it might. Or is this a metaphor for something else designed to convey an awful reality through our very limited language? There are many conservative theologians, even while affirming the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment, they would say that this is metaphorical language. Our assumption might be, well, if you say it's not a literal fire, you're dumbing down hell. You're trying to diminish the horror of hell. You're trying to soften that reality. This is not necessarily true. 
I don't believe. Some may object that invoking the concept of figurative language is a thinly veiled attempt to evade the force of Jesus' words. But precisely the opposite is true. The fact is the horrors of hell are so great that no earthly language can do complete justice to them. By using the figure of unquenchable fire, undying worms, etc., Jesus selected the most horrific descriptions that earthly language would allow. As Robert Raymond observes, the reality the figures seek to represent should surely be understood by us to be more, not less, than the word pictures they depict. Likewise, Ralph Powell urges, if the descriptions of hell are figurative or symbolic, the conditions they represent are more intense and real than the figures of speech in which they are expressed. So the point is, whether or not these descriptions of hell are literal or not is really, honestly, not quite that important. Why is this? Because the picture they present is at least as bad, and if we took it quite literally, probably worse. One writer noted, without the explicit and reiterated statements of God incarnate, that's Jesus, it is doubtful whether so awful a truth would have such a conspicuous place as it has always had in the creed of Christendom. Then this writer asked this question, if we gladly embrace the teaching of incarnate love when he speaks words of comfort and of life, must we not also receive with all due solemnity the words of incarnate justice when he speaks of judgment, perdition, and hell? We can't have it both ways, can we? Scripture describes hell as fire, unquenchable fire, the lake of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, the wrath to come, torments, condemnation, woe, a fiery furnace, the lake of burning sulfur, everlasting contempt, darkness, exclusion, damnation, retribution, the second death. It's overwhelming when we kind of put it all together and see all the individual descriptions of hell. Many of you remember Clay Sterrett. He's the elder at another church that attends the conclave that we relate to. He said in his book, The Judgments of God, eternal judgment is a foundational doctrine for Christians to build upon. Sometimes we mistake foundational truths as simple truths. Foundational means more than in the initial stages. The foundation of a house is not there merely to launch it on its permanent site. The foundation is the permanent site, giving strength and definition to the finished building. Eternal judgment is one of the foundational doctrines that's found in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hell is certainly the most troubling of these foundational doctrines that we see listed in this passage. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's the one we're quickest to lay aside. One reason, honestly, if we think about it, that we have such a hard time with this doctrine of hell is that we believe in a merciful and loving God, don't we? And it's true. He is merciful. He is loving. How can we reconcile those two things? We often have a hard time reconciling two seemingly opposite things in Scripture. And in this case, a merciful, loving God on the one hand and eternal conscious judgment on the other. I got to tell you, preparing for a message on hell is hell. 
It's one of the most difficult things I've done. I've studied and I've prayed and I've meditated on this topic for several days now, and I found it to be a real spiritual battle. However, I have to tell you, there's a few things that have come to mind that help me with this difficult challenge. The Word of God says in Ephesians 3.19 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. His love is one of the things that I can know in part, but I can't understand fully. Quoting Clay Sterrett, None of us can fathom what an insult it is to Almighty God when we reject the sacrifice of His own Son so that we can go on our own way and do our own thing. God's love is so great, however, that if we want to go in the opposite direction of heaven, He will let us. He will permit us to choose hell. Essentially, what we're seeing here is that God's love means He will not force His will on us. Those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who are saved, are the ones who will bow their knees to God and say to God, your will be done. However, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his book, The Great Divorce, the condemned are the people who are in hell to whom God finally says, your will be done. G.K. Chesterton once remarked that hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. First time I've ever heard hell referred to as a compliment. Another thing that helps me come to grips with the doctrine of hell is that we do not fully grasp the holiness of God. If we could see as God sees from his holy perspective, then perhaps the doctrine of eternal conscious torment wouldn't be quite as hard for us to come to terms with. In a book called Gehenna by Paul Thigpen, one character says this, It seems extreme to us, and yet our standards of good and evil have been marred. If we could see as God sees, perhaps we would agree that even what looks to us like small sins are far worse an affront to His holiness than we had ever dreamed. Another reason that I can begin to come to grips with the doctrine of hell is that we can be confident that God is a just God. God is a just God. Genesis 18.25 tells us, Will not the judge of all earth, asked rhetorically, will not the judge of all earth do right? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, says he is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And then in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, we see this. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Clay Sterrett said, God's nature is totally good, just, and right. All injustice can be measured only against God's character. When C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he rejected the idea of God, the idea of a divine being, because of all the injustice in the world. And then as he was thinking through, confronted with the claims of Christianity, he asked himself where he had gotten the idea of injustice in the first place he realized he had a problem. Lewis wrote, Man 
doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. When I was comparing this universe, what I was comparing this universe with when I called it unjust, what was I comparing it to? Injustice in the world, in fact, points to a God who himself set the standard of justice. We can be confident that God has done everything possible to keep us from hell. That's something else that helps me come to grips with the doctrine of eternal punishment. We see this throughout Scripture. We see in Psalm 98:2, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. We see in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Later in Romans, in chapter 2, verse 4, we, say, we see, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? In Romans chapter 9, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. If God would open up our eyes and help us to understand the terrible price that he paid, I cannot help but believe that in that moment we would comprehend the awful guilt of rejecting, of spurning that price that was paid. We sing the song that has the verse, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. So whether we can fully grasp the wise and the wherefores, and I don't think we can fully grasp, but whether we can or not, hell is an inescapable teaching of the Word of God. R.A. Torrey writes this, whether we can defend it on philosophical grounds or not, it is our business to believe it and leave it to the clearer light of eternity to explain what we cannot now understand, realizing that God may have infinitely wise reasons for doing things which we in our ignorance can see no sufficient reason at all. It is the most ludicrous conceit for being so limited and foolish as even the wisest of men are to attempt to dogmatize how a God of infinite wisdom must act. All we know as to how God will act is what God has seen fit to tell us. One of the things God has told us in his word is this everyone will experience life after death. The question is whether or not, is not whether or not we'll enter eternity. We all will. The question is where will we spend eternity? When I was a new believer, I regularly visited a prisoner in Attica State Prison in New York. Some of you who remember your history or were around in those days, may remember what happened a year before I began visiting this man. 
Attica became known as the site of the bloodiest prison riot in history at that point. I actually had a neighbor who was a state trooper and stormed the prison that day. I also had a classmate whose father was a prison guard who was held captive by the prisoners in that riot. I remember going into that prison, I did it several times to visit this prisoner there. And I remember thinking every time I went in there, this is a place no one in their right mind would want to go to. It's a place to avoid. It's a place to avoid. The same is very much true of hell. I've never been there, and I only visited Attica. I only have what the Word of God tells me about hell. But what it tells me is enough to know that I don't want to go there. I don't even want to visit there, but I especially don't want to go there, and I especially don't want to go there forever and ever. I also know enough about hell that I don't want my family, I don't want my friends, I don't want my neighbors to go there. I don't want anyone to go there. Isn't that why we send missionaries? Isn't that why we give sacrificially of our time and our energy and our money because we don't want anybody to go there. And these are all things that work together to keep people from going to eternal judgment. That kind of brings us full circle. The reasons we must look at what Scripture tells us about hell. First of all, there may be someone there, someone here this morning, who's going there because they've never been born again, never received the gift of salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There may be some who, as it notes in, chapter, in uh, Hebrews, fit the second reason. They are those who deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. And there's no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. Understanding hell should motivate us to godly living. I have to be very clear about this. Godly living does not earn us eternal life but it sure should motivate us to obedience and staying close to God. Obedience is how we reveal our love for the God who rescued us from sin and eternal death by his grace and by his mercy. I would say that most of us here this morning fall into that third category we mentioned at the beginning. We don't want to see anybody go there. So this reminder of the reality and the finality of hell should motivate us to tell others. If you're in the first category this morning, Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Receive the free gift of eternal life today. Jesus paid the penalty. That is what it means for us to be redeemed. Sin against God is so serious, it's so severe that only the death of the sinless Son of God could atone for it. When we look at all the biblical warnings about hell, unbelievers end up betting their eternity that Christianity is a lie. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not much of a gambler. But if you're a gambler, this is a pretty big gamble. It's the biggest gamble you'll ever make. Consider carefully the claims of Scripture. Consider all there is to gain and all there is to lose. Now, you may think I'm wrong, but there was a singer, Christian singer named Michael Lamardian 
he had a song that once asked, what will you do if I'm right? You may think I'm wrong. What will you do if I'm right? Now, if you're in the second category, consider what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. And then in verse 14, it says, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And for most of us, I guess, who are in this third category, let this reminder of hell be a reminder of God's grace and mercy toward you. Let this reminder spur us on to fulfill the words of Jesus in the Great Commission when he told us to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus told us that we would be his witnesses. We can and should be his witnesses to his saving grace. And let's not forget when we say, I'm saved, let's not forget what we're saved from. That's what we're looking at this morning. This is what we're saved from. Jim Garrett said last week in his sermon that the destination is what it's all about. Let's not lose sight of that. In all the good things we do, and we should keep doing them, let's not lose sight of that. The destination is what it's all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19 says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be more pitied than all men. We're just a few weeks from Holy Week. Matter of fact, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And during Holy Week, we remember and we mark the awful price that God paid to save us, to rescue us from sin and eternal death. So in this season where we think of what it costs God the Father to send God the Son to suffer and die for us, let's remember where each and every one of us would be headed if it weren't for that amazing sacrifice. I want to close with an excerpt from a very famous sermon. This is the kind of sermon that you don't hear anymore. You don't hear it preached hardly anywhere. It's the kind of sermon that fits the definition of fire and brimstone. Some of you may have heard of this or read it. This is from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was preached in 1741. This is just a small segment of that sermon. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. It may be that they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing would it be to think of? How might all of the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? It is doubtless the case of some whom you have seen and known that never deserved hell more than you and that heretofore appeared as likely to have been now alive as you, 
Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day in where many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. If you ever want to be convicted about the reality of hell, read the whole thing. It's easily available, sinners in the hands of an angry God. As we pray this morning, consider how God would have you respond to the preaching of his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible reminder of eternal judgment. Lord, we thank you that we are reminded to not ever glibly say, I'm saved, but to remember from what we are saved. We remember your grace and we remember your mercy. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus because that's what it took to rescue us from sin and eternal judgment. Father, we pray for each of those in each of these categories here this morning. If there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, we pray they would not leave this room this morning without repenting without confessing their sins, without confessing their need to make you Lord and Savior in their lives, to accept the free gift of eternal life offered through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if there are some of us here who aren't walking with you and who are walking in sin, even though we've been believers, even though we've followed you, we pray, Father God, that we would have hearts to be obedient and to follow you because of the consequences of sin and what it took to bring us forgiveness. And we do pray for all of us, Father, in the third category, who don't want to see anyone go there. We pray, Father God, you'd give us passion, you'd give us wisdom, you'd give us understanding, and how to tell people that they don't have to go there. We pray you'd give us opportunities, Lord God, to see people come into your kingdom. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be faithful to pray, knowing that, as Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draw them. Lord, we pray that we'd be faithful to seek you for these souls, Lord God. Be faithful to do what you've called us to do as our little part in the Great Commission, Lord God. Remembering, Father, that those that we know and love all around us every day so many of those that we know and love are going to hell. And none of us wants to see that, Father God, recognizing the reality of eternal judgment. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would bring deep conviction to each of us and deep understanding that this doctrine, in contrast with your grace and mercy, is such an amazing thing. The understanding of eternal judgment, Lord, how it makes your grace and mercy shine so incredibly brightly in contrast to what's to come for those 
who don't receive this free gift that you offer freely to them even this morning. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to wrestle with these things. Help us, Lord God, to follow you with whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.